So as you can see on the board right behind me, or maybe not, if you can't look past me, we're going to be looking at Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, which is of marriage and divorce. But before we start uh, by looking at these, uh, this chapter, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, because your name is holy, and we adore you today, and we praise you as the only God of heaven and earth, and especially as we will be looking at Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, we ask you to guide us in our marriages so that we may hallow your name through it. Give us strength and give us boldness and courage to have a godly biblical marriage. And those who are not married already, may you guide them and may you guide their futures so that they also seek to have a biblical marriage according to your will and for your glory. Bless us now as we start to look at your um, word and to the at the confession and bless this time as well. Amen. So chapter 24 of marriage and divorce. The first thing that struck me when I was looking at chapter 24 was that it directly proceeded after chapter 23. Not only is this logical numerically, but when you look at chapter 23, and I believe you had the um, discussion last week about chapter 23 of civil magistrates. Can I get a yes, if that was the case? You did look at civil government. Okay. So chapter 23 is about civil government. Then chapter 24 is about of marriage and divorce. And then chapter 25 to chapter 31 is regarding the church. Chapter 25 begins with the church, its uh, essence. Chapter 26 goes on to say what is the communion of the saints. Next chapter, the sacraments. Next one, church censures. And the last one of this section is chapter 23, which is of synods and councils. So almost sandwiched between these two sections, the section of the civil government and the section of the church, we find here in chapter 24 the section of marriage and of divorce. And the reason why the divines placed chapter 24 between these chapters of the state and the church, I believe, is because there is a relationship between the church and state, especially when, it, well, amongst other things, when it comes to marriage and divorce. Both parties or both spheres has an interest in marriages and divorce. The church has an interest in marriages because God instituted it as a ceremony and because the Lord gives several passages in His Holy Word regarding marriages and that should provide guidance to the members of the church how they should enter into a marriage and how they as Christians should live within a marriage how they should think about marriage. And then the church also has the obligation and the responsibility to teach the members of the church how they ought to think about marriage and divorce. And then also, the church has the obligation, when a marriage is biblically unlawful, they have the obligation as well as the authority to exercise discipline and censure over that marriage. Let's say, for example, there's an unbiblical situation or example where somebody deserts his wife or commits adultery and breaks the bond of the marriage through that action. The church has the authority as well as the duty to investigate this and to discipline and to disciple these parties in the marriage. And then BCO chapter 59, the Book of Church Order, chapter 59 Paragraph 2 states the following about marriage. It says, Christians should marry in the Lord, and we will hear that from the Confession of Faith today as well. Christians sh should marry in the Lord. Therefore, it is fit that their marriage 
be solemnized by a lawful minister. That special instruction is given to them and suitable prayers offered when they enter into this relation. So the solemnization of a marriage before the Lord is therefore, as I understand this paragraph of the book of church order, is on the table of the church. The church should, can I use the word, provide the minister to solemnize this marriage. So I know in the, in the past there's been various ideas or perspectives regarding marriage. Certain times, certain civilizations viewed it as solely a matter of a family. Other times it was solely viewed as a matter of the church. Other times solely as a matter of the state. But the way I understand this is that there is a very delicate relationship between church and state. And especially here where the church is to be providing the minister for the solemnization of the church, of the marriage rather. And of course, this is primarily only in Christian religions, uh, Christian uh, marriage. marriage. Uh, unbeliever, and sadly enough, some do, but an unbeliever won't, in most cases, go to, a, let's say, a reformed pastor and ask him to solemnize the marriage. They would only go to the court and do it there. But in a Christian marriage, the church plays a role as well. And then secondly, the civil government also has an interest in marriages because a natural consequence of a marriage is that two people will be living together now. And another influence of a marriage is, in a lot of cases, childbirth. And where there are people living together and where there are children, the government's interests is in the protection of those lives who live in this relationship or as a fruit of that relationship. And the duties in marriage is, amongst other things, or the duties of the government, amongst other things, in a marriage is to protect women from physical abuse by their husbands and also to ensure that the, their children is taken care of properly. And otherwise, it might be the case that these children who grows up into broken homes where the parents does not nurture or guide their children well and they are, they are malnourished, the welfare or the social workers has the authority to come and take that child or children away from the parents and place them into foster home. So the, the government has an interest in this relationship to, for the welfare of both the parents as well as the children, where they are protected. And then also during a marriage or when a divorce occurs, and sometimes especially here the government is interested in a marriage because there is an economical effect. Whether a party or a couple is married within community of property or without community of property, this will have an impact on their tax. This will have an impact on who gets to own what or who gets to keep on having certain tangible things. So the government wants to be informed about who is legally married to protect the well-being of the family in this financial, economical aspect as well, as well as to protect the well-beings of the individuals in these cases. Now, in a Western civilization and especially in a as some people call it, a post-Christian civilization, we can only imagine and expect that the biblical standards, that which the church has for the marriage, will not be the chief measure whereby the government or the state or the civil magistrates um, look at how a marriage is to be and who is to be the parties of a marriage. And we can see that very clearly from around the world as, they, as there are rules and laws given that um, includes a marriage to be lawful between same-sex persons or polygamous relationships. And they also have a different view across the world about what is the grounds for divorce. And that is in a lot of aspects contrary to what the scripture teaches and what the confession also makes clear. But the principle is that the government has, give, has been given the sword for the protection and the advancement of civilization 
as well as families, which includes the marriages and the fruit of the marriage, which is children. But last thing that I want to say before looking at this first chapter is that it's important to realize and to remember that a marriage is not the institution of the government. And therefore, the government, biblically speaking, does not have the authority to say who may and who may not be part of a marriage. And what is the purpose of a marriage? The government does not have the authority to redefine what a marriage is. They cannot make their own laws regarding marriage or divorce, but biblically speaking, they are only to minister what the Lord has already made clear in His Word. Okay, with that said, let's look now at the first paragraph, or the, yes, the first paragraph of this chapter. And this PowerPoint will only consist of the paragraph, which um, the, the divines stated, and then the proof texts, which is numbered with the letters corresponding to the paragraph. So then paragraph one states, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. And as this paragraph asks the basic question, who is the parties of a marriage? And in this paragraph, it's very clearly stated that there are to be two people alone in a marriage. A marriage is to be between two persons alone. At any given time, any person is to be married but uh, to one other person alone. One man and one woman is to be married with each other at the same time. Notice that last phrase, at the same time. What the divine states here is that it's not unlawful to be married more than one time. It's unlawful to be married more than once at a certain period in one's life. I can't go at, to the um, session tomorrow and say, I'd like to marry so-and-so, because I am already married. But if a person's spouse is deceased, as we will read later, I think in the next paragraph, or if they, there is lawful cause for divorce, that person may be married again. But at the same time, you're only allowed to have one spouse. So adultery, abandonment, and death is the just causes for remarriage. But we will see that in a few minutes. So polygamy is a big no-no, according to the divines as well as according to Scripture. A very obvious other point that the divines is, try, uh, is making here, not only trying to make, but it says that it is between one man and one woman. Notice the opposite sex which the divine speaks of here. It's between one man, masculine person, and one female, a feminine person. Not between two men or two women or other situations, but it's only to be between one man and one woman. And already in this first paragraph, we, we hear that the divines held their neck out to what is today very anti-cultural in the 21st century. And even though in all 50 states in the U.S. and in most countries around the world, polygamy is still viewed as illegal, there's thousands of relationships that live polygamously. Couples, three, three people or even more living together, and they live as if married. They live in that sexual relationship with each other. And just because they're not married doesn't make it better to live in that relationship. But they still live in sin, in, in polygamy. And even though there are multiple accounts in Scripture where there are polygamous relationships, that, that does not mean that it's correct, that it is lawful, that it is obedient towards the Lord to live in that manner. We view those passages as indicative. We see that is what happened. 
rather than that is what should happen and that is what gives you the ground to live in that in such a sort of relationship as well. And once again, we see here from this example of, let's say, Solomon or other people in the Bible, David, who had more than one wife at a certain time, that does not set the stage for the church. The society does not set the stage for how we have, as members of the church should live. But rather, the church, according to the laws of the Lord, should set the stage for how the world should live. We should set the example in this aspect as well. Is there any questions about this? The fact that there's only to be one man, one woman, and two people alone before we move on. Okay. Okay, so let's look at the biblical proofs. Very uh, good one. The first one, Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, notice the oppositeness of the sexes, and they shall become one flesh. It can be deducted from this also that it is to be one man and one wife, one husband and one wife alone. And then Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 to 6, and this happened when the Pharisees came to Jesus, and they asked him, is it lawful, or what is the grounds for divorce? And then Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and here Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter 2, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Romans 7, Accordingly she, shall, she will be called, Adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So from this proof text, we not only hear what is already discussed now, but we hear now that a marriage is to be perpetual. It is to be lifelong. That's the principle. What God has joined together, let no man separate. That's the norm or the principle that God has given for a marriage. And we will hear that there are certain aspects or certain situations where it is lawful to, be, to get a divorce, but under normal circumstances, if there is such a thing, it should be till death. And this arrangement or this marriage between Adam and Eve was not only applicable for them, but as a creation ordinance, it was applicable and lawful for all mankind descending from Adam and Eve, all future generations. That's paragraph one. Are there any questions or remarks? Yes. 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 They probably had that this confession decades ago, but as the culture changed, the church changed as well and adopted this same-sex marriage. Chapter 2, this paragraph answers the question, what is the purpose of a marriage? And it states, marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, firstly. Secondly, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue. And thirdly, for the church, also increase of, increase of the church with the holy seed. And then fourthly, for the prevention of uncleanness. And once again, when we read Genesis chapter 2, we hear that the marriage as a creation ordinance was for the purpose of mutual help and support. Genesis chapter 2, uh, the first proof text. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And we can only imagine this playing out in Adam's life where he had the responsibility to name all the animals. And he sees a lion and he calls it lion. And he sees a giraffe, calls it giraffe. An antelope. And he goes on and he sees, but all of these animals has a mate, a helper, somebody fit for him or her. And then he realizes, but 
I myself does not have a helper. And God gave Adam the responsibility not only to give the animals names, but also to rule over the creation. And he realizes that he needs a helper, a support in this calling to govern over the earth. And for that, a wife was necessary for Adam, one of his own kind, a woman that could rule with him. Adam needed a helper, someone to support him, but likewise also wives and Eve needed a helper or a support for her as well. So the way I view it is that it's not only the man that needs a helper, a support, but the wife needs a helper and a support as well. And as we learn from Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Peter 3, man is to support his wife. How? How is man to support his wife? Okay. Man is primarily to support his wife by loving her. And a wife is primarily to support her husband by respect her. And this is an important section that is crucial to grasp. Man's help or support towards his wife is not only or solely to be the breadwinner and to make sure that there are finan enough financial means to support the family and the wife in their needs, but a man's chief aim in supporting his wife is to love her. And likewise, a wife's help or support towards her husband is not solely to stand in the kitchen to prepare food and to make sure the house is clean and that their house is pretty and tidy, but her chief support towards her husband is to respect and in our culture, the, these two things are, or these two aspects of a woman's love towards her husband and a husband's love towards his wife is intermingled. The husbands think that that is their chief way to support his family and his wife is to give the financial means. And a, a wife thinks that she is respecting or she is loving her husband if the house is tidy and the children are fed, and these sorts of things. But it's important also to realize that this does not mean that husbands is not to respect their wives, and that wives is not to love their husbands. This is included as well. But a husband's primary need is to be respected and, or in this situation, and a wife's primary need is to be loved. They are the marriage was therefore ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife. Are there any questions before we move on to the next purpose of marriage or remarks? Okay. Can you imagine what would have happened if Adam and Eve only loved each other and she respected him? That's the full purpose of their marriage. Would we be here today? No, we won't. Marriage was not only created or ordained for love and help uh, between these two uh, individuals in the marriage, but the confession goes on to say that the purpose of marriage is for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue. Genesis 1 verse 28 teaches and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, have children, and fill the earth and subdue it. And similarly, in Genesis 9, God told Noah, and it can be deducted from this that Noah's three, three sons also received this command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the, one of the purposes of a marriage is to have children. Notice that these two commands, commandments is given to married people. It's given to a husband and a wife. This is the, the uh, boundary or the sphere where childbirth should occur. It's in the marriage. It's the responsibility of married couples only to multiply and fill the earth, to have children. 
and children therefore is the fruit of a marriage of a marriage and not of any relationship and this is also for the well-being oh, this is important it's also for the well-being of the children that they are raised and that they grow up within the boundaries of a marriage of their parents being married to each other and although i recognize and I um, understand that there are certain situations where, let's say, perhaps death occurs, where one parent, one parent dies shortly after the chi- a child's birth or multiple or various years after that. The principle is here is that it is for the well-being of the children as well to, to grow up in a household where there is a firm or stable marriage. And listen to this abstract that I uh, read from an article. It said, Children from broken families are at high risk of juvenile delinquency. And this specifically speaks about um, children in broken homes because of divorce. It goes on to say, Divorce leads to children developing antisocial behaviors. And research shows that children from stable families are unlikely or less likely to engage in criminal acts. And this is because the parents help each other to supervise, monitor, and to punish children. And this is from a secular article. This is not a church man or a church woman that wrote this article. Even the world sees in that it is for the well-being of children if both parents are in this family relationship. And further, it is statistically proven and a well-known fact that children growing up in stable families are less likely to get in trouble in school or with the law. They are more likely to graduate and even more likely to have a higher income themselves one day and be married themselves. So the increase of mankind with legitimate issue within the boundaries of marriage is also important for the well-being of the children. In the next part, the purpose, before I go on, is there any questions regarding this part? Okay, the next purpose of a marriage is for the increase of the church with a holy seed. The same situation. Can you imagine if, if Adam and Eve didn't have children, we wouldn't have been here? And the same can be said if all the Christians around the world today stop having children. Would there be a church in a century or 60 years from now? Humanly speaking, not. So the marriages, therefore, are the preservers of the church. And this is important for, I guess, especially for young couples like, or for young people like myself and young married people. This is a responsibility that we have. If, Lord willingly, we have the, the grace to be in a marriage and to be physically able to have children, we have the responsibility to be the preservers of the church. Of course, of course it's not out of our own works. God will uh, preserve His church, even if it's not through us young couples. But this is a responsibility that we have nonetheless. Malachi Chapter 2, verse 15 states that godly offspring is the result of a godly marriage. The purpose for the marriage after increasing mankind by offspring is to raise their children up in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. So that's important. It's not only for Christians, important to have children and then let it be from there, but to guide their children in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. In fact, when the baptism is administered, the, the parents of the child promises in the third question to increase the church with the Holy Seed by raising the, their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to pray for and with the child, to endeavor to set a godly example for their children and to teach the doctrines of our holy religion to the child. So not only to have children, but to raise them up as the holy seed of the church. And therefore, the parents make the promise that they will endeavor to raise their children up 
as the holy seed of the church with the guidance or the help of the spirit of course the next purpose of the marriage uh, is given as the prevention of uncleanness paul writes in first corinthians 7 verse 2 and then verse 9 but because of the temptation to sexual immorality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So this part of the confession answers the question of where, where should sexual activities take place? It is within the marriage. And therefore, in an ideal and obedient situation, where the parties is obedient and living in obedience towards the Lord, those who are not in a marriage should not be afraid of sexual immorality being committed against them. Can you hear how this is a, a, a safety net, maybe if I can put it like that, for the single people or the people living in marriages so that other people won't commit sexual immorality against them? Because if I know that the people around me is obedient towards the Lord, and in this aspect that they only live um, sexually with their own spouses, I would know that this person, either male or female, won't threaten me with sexual immorality. Sexual deeds would only be exercised, exercised in a loving manner within the bounds of marriage. And the other side of the coin is also true that where Paul states in verse 9 that if you burn with passion, it is better to be married. If you have the continual desire to live, the, live out the sexual passion or uh, activities that, that you have, it is better to get married, to have that boundary where you can live that out than to live in sin outside the bounds or the boundary of marriage. Any questions now for the first two paragraphs? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even think about the, the physical uncleanness of the diseases. So thank you for that remark. Okay, chapter, uh, paragraph three. This paragraph answers the question, whom should Christians marry? And notice that when we will read this paragraph, it states that all people um, may marry. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry. So it does not say that only Christians may marry, but all people may marry. All people may enter into marriage, even unbelievers. They too have the law written on their hearts and should seek to live with their spouses in a marriage as the writer of Hebrew teaches. And therefore, the, uh, the divine stated that marriage is for all sorts of people. But the focus on this chapter is especially for Christians, who are Christians to marry. And we will see now what this paragraph is all about. It says, It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry. Who is those people or, or, or what is the circumstances for the people to marry? Those who are able with judgment to give their consent. And yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. And therefore such as profess the true reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their lives or maintain damnable heresies. Only those who are able with judgment to give consent may marry. Oftentimes, when I thought about biblical marriages in the past, I thought about it as a strictly arranged marriage. Parents almost forced a bride upon a groom. That's the idea I had for a long time about marriages. But then, and this was the passage of Caroline and I's uh, marriage ceremony, 
uh, Genesis chapter 24. Was it that? I think so. <laughs> Where the, the servant of, yes, Genesis chapter 24, verse 57 and 58. That's the, that's the last proof of that first paragraph of the proof text. Where the servant came to Rebekah and, is it the servant of Jacob? No, Abraham. Yes. The servant, yes, because Rebekah married Isaac. So when the servant of Abraham came to Rebekah and he, he got the, the reality that this is the, the person that Isaac should marry, he, he doesn't go on and arrange everything and they get married, but he goes to Rebekah. They call Rebekah and, and ask her if, if she wants to commit or advance into this marriage. And she said, yes, I will go. She, she, what's the word there, gives consent to the marriage. It was not forced upon her. So even in biblical times, that should have been the case, but in today's circumstances as well, uh, marriages should not be a forced upon arrangement. Both parties of the marriage are to give their consent. And this implies that the individual should be of such an age as well that they are physically or mentally able to judge whether it is lawful for them to marry or not. So the, this portion of the confession also safeguards the individuals in a marriage where it states that they need to be able to give consent, both parties. So... A person can't turn around after being five or ten years in a marriage and say, you know what, I, I didn't want to do this from the beginning because when either he asked the wife a few years ago to be married, he gave his consent. He wants to be married. And when the to-be wife agreed by saying yes when he proposed and by saying yes when they got married, she gave consent. And then Christians are to be married in the Lord. And this simply states that Christians are to marry Christians. They are to marry in the Lord. And Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, and he says exactly that. A wife is bound to her husband as, lo as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And this does not count only for second marriages, that only that marriage has to be in the Lord. But this implies also that the first marriage, the any marriage basically needs to be in the Lord for Christians. We see this very clearly in the Old Testament, where explicitly the Lord commands the Israelites not to marry the heathens or the Gentiles. Because what's the main reason for that, that the Lord says? Because otherwise, your daughters is going to whore after the Gentiles' gods, the idols. So it is to prevent spiritual prostitution, spiritual idolatry, to be married in the Lord. Because it, it's very easier to marry, or it's very easier to whore after nothing. I need to put this in another way. If a believer is married to an unbeliever, in a lot of cases, what happens is that the believer turns out to be an unbeliever rather than the unbeliever taking the guidance of the believer and becoming a Christian as well. So this is to safeguard and to protect the, the, that Christian as well in that aspect. Christians are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Are there any questions on this part? Yes. Just because it happened doesn't mean it should have happened as well. <laughs> or those arranged marriages where there was no consent, because I, I assume that uh, that happened a lot as well. Okay. Can we go on to the next paragraph? Okay, I see no objection. Paragraph 4, marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word. 
nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law or man or consent of parties. So even if they are consent, it's not lawful to have this marriage. So as those persons may live together as man and wife. So I trust all the high schoolers knows exactly what, I can't even, yeah, <laughs> consanguinity and affinity. Even in our school, when, where English wasn't our first language, we learned this words. No, not really. <laughs> so con consanguinity is, is, is it a, I know Rick and Peter, I saw Peter earlier. Is he still here? Peter, yes. Um, is a synonym of consanguinity incest, blood relation incest, the way we r usually understand incest? Okay, so co thank you. Um, consanguinity means then to have a, to to endeavor in a relationship with your blood brother, sister, mom, dad, child. So that is forbidden. None of us are allowed to marry our parents, children, brothers, or sisters, or uncles and aunts. Leviticus 18, that first proof text, explains it very clearly that these relationships are forbidden, parents, children. But then affinity also means similarly, but it is relationships brought with marriage. So a husband is not allowed to marry his brother-in-law, well, sister-in-law, definitely not brother-in-law, but his sister-in-law. <laughs> sister because that is, by affinity, forbidden. Oh, there are situations where that is valid. Of course, if the, if the wife dies, the husband is allowed to marry the wife's sister. Do I understand that correctly? Because she's free, the husband is free from the law then. But what is not allowed with this affinity is marrying your brother, your stepbrother, rather, or your stepsister. In cases especially where you grow up together because there is two fam the there's familiarity in if you understand what I'm trying to say with that within this brother and stepsister example. So it's not a um, lawful for them to get married. I hope there's no questions about this section. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes, with a redeemer. Um, but once again, that's because the the husband died, so the the wife is lawfully um, able to marry the the husband's brother. Like it is because they are married um, by a f they have that af affinity relationship, and then the. The husband dies, so there is no blood relation between that. But yes, we see that, especially in Ruth and with Boaz, we see that um, he was the the next of kin. Yes, yeah. Do you want to answer that? A Abel and Cain. I mean, who else was there to marry than his own sister? The way I see it is at that time period in the early Old Testament, it was lawful to have these relations because there was no other, especially with Cain, Cain and Abel. Um, but only later on, it was explicitly forbidden. It was forbidden. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Paragraph five. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the in innocent party to dissolve that contract. We need to understand that in the biblical times, as we, as we read from Matthew chapter 1, where Joseph was already betrothed to Mary, um, that was in today's culture the equivalent of being engaged. 
the betrothal, being engaged to her. This was already in a certain aspect, they, weren't, they were bound by a contract. They already made the promises they are going to get married. But as, and therefore Joseph, as we read in Matthew chapter 1, he wanted to dissolve, or yes, he wanted to resolve to divorce Mary quietly. So there was already, he had to divorce his engaged his fiancée. So even in today's time, the we make less of a thing about it if two fiancés break up. But obviously we make a big thing of it if married people break up. Okay. And then the just cause is explained a bit. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue a divorce, and after the divorce to marry another, as if the offending party were dead. A and the thing I want to point out, which is for me quite important, is in case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to seek a divorce. It does not mean that the innocent party should or ought or must seek a divorce. And Chad Van Dixhorn um, pointed it out good. He said, illicit sexual activity does not necessitate divorce. It does not even make divorce recommended. But it certainly justifies it. So it is lawful to seek a divorce if your spouse has committed adultery. But that's not the recommended route to go. The purpose of a marriage is to stay perpetual. Of course, it, you are lawful to file for a divorce, but the, yeah, the purpose should be to, to stay united. That's the way I see it and, and hold fast to it. So until the, ninth, the middle of the 19th century and England and the United States, ground for the, grounds for divorce were pretty much confined to adultery and cruelty within the marriage. But in today's circumstances, we hear that basically anything goes when, it goes when it comes to filing for divorce. If you're not unhappy with the way your spouse makes certain decisions, it's enough reason to file for a divorce. Or if your children isn't happy with their father or their mother, it's enough reason to file for a divorce. Jesus and Paul is clear about it that Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and Paul also includes abandonment in this, in this cause, that's the only two reasons what justifies divorce. That's the principle. Questions? Yes. I think so. The, the purpose would also... Would always be repentance. So the, the person committed the adultery should pursue repentance. And hopefully, if that person repented, he will seek to enter into the marriage with his previous wife, rather than continuing in committing adultery by going into a new marriage. That's how I view it. I see a few nods. Seems like on Sunday, Sundays I always have a long breath where I tend to go over the time that I have. <laughs> Paragraph 6. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrates, is cause, cause sufficient of the dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a party, a, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons con concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Referring back to the Pharisees that came to Jesus and asked him about the situations where divorce may occur, he says in his answer that 
the principle is to stay or to be joined together what God has placed together. Only because of the evil or the sin in the hearts of the people, Moses gave the certificate of divorce for the people. And therefore, there was lawful grounds for divorce. But the, the uh, purpose or the, yes, the purpose of marriage from the beginning was to, for it to last, to be perpetual. But then in the New Testament, we read clearly that, as I stated in the previous paragraph, that Paul and Jesus says that desertion or abandonment and idolatry is lawful um, reason for the innocent party to seek a divorce. And then also when, uh, a, let's say, uh, two unbelievers get mar- gets married and one get or repents and becomes a believer, or the two Christians marry and the one apostatize, so you have an unbeliever and a believer in a marriage. Paul does not say the believer should divorce. And he does not say that the unbeliever should, ma- should leave his believing spouse. But he says that if the unbeliever does not want to continue in this marriage relationship, the believer is lawfully able to let the unbeliever go and let the unbeliever desert this relationship. And we see that in... Deuteronomy 24, I'm just going to read this, and then I'm uh, finished. I'm done. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she repart, departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her, his house, or if the later man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she had been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. Why? Because... When he sends her out, he already divorced her. So that person is not his wife anymore. Therefore, he can't just take her back again because there has been abandonment. Or the, the husband, by sending her, his wife away, has abandoned her. Does that make sense? And did I articulate that right? even though he died, the second husband. Any final remarks from anybody before we conclude? Or questions? Thank you. Then you are dismissed. See you in the sanctuary.